So this summer I read an article titled, um, What Coaches Really Teach. What Coaches Really Teach. And it was a really good article about the lifelong impact that coaches have on athletes. And I thought of you all because we have many coaches in our congregation. Um, And uh, you know that a relationship with the athlete uh, and the lessons that are learned apply not just on the field, but off the field. A great coach builds us up, the article says, and teaches important lessons off the field. Lessons like emotional management, confidence, perseverance, and resilience. Lessons that have a permanent impact that go well beyond the playing field. And the article mentions three very important lessons. Lesson number one, remember your seat. Remember your seat. It's a, that's a lesson from competitive rowing, meaning every seat on that boat has a job that no one else can fill. Remember your seat. Focus on your seat. Don't compare your seat with somebody else's seat. Don't compare yourself with someone else. You focus on you and your seat and your responsibility. Remember your seat. Lesson one. Lesson number two. Breathe. Breathe. Meaning, you know, enjoy the game. Have fun. Play to play, not to win. Play to play, not to win. One coach said this. If you drive only toward an end result without loving the journey, then you're never going to win. And if you do, that win is only an empty shell because you've traded in substance for a trophy. So enjoy the journey. And you're playing. Breathe. Breathe. Remember your seat, breathe, and then fatigue will not be a factor. Fatigue will not be a factor. So if we lose, it's not going to be because we're tired. We're going to play the entire game, the whole game, giving our best effort until the game is over. We're going to make ourselves the best competitors we can possibly be. Remember your seat. Breathe. Fatigue will not be a factor. And these lessons really are lifelong lessons. And especially when you've got a tight connection between an athlete and a coach. The, the, uh, the athlete who respects the coach's wisdom and experience. And the coach who's doing what's right for the athlete both on and off the field. And so I'm thinking about Coach Brown, Coach Stickney, Coach Ward, Coach Nesvold, Coach Hastings. These are coaches that have, that have been involved in my life. And, and I can just rattle their names off effortlessly because they impacted me. If you are a coach, let me tell you, your impact and your influence on the lives of others has lasting influence that goes beyond the playing field. Remember that. Uh, Sarah and I went to uh, the Celebrate Recovery Leadership Conference, um, uh, and we heard a speaker, Henry Cloud. He's a psychologist, and he's kind of a leadership coach. He wrote a wonderful book that uh, we're both reading through together. It's called The Power of the Other. The Power of the Other. Listen to what he says. 
He says, the undeniable reality is that how well you do in life and business depends not only on what you do and how you do it, your skills and competency, but also on who is doing it with you or to you. He asks, so who's helping you? Who's fighting you? Who's strengthening you? Who is resisting you? These people are literally making you who you are. Who's helping you build those skills? Who's tearing them down? Other people have power in your life for good or for bad. But what kind of power are others going to have over your life and performance? Are they going to enhance it or diminish it? You don't have a choice about whether or not others have power in your life. You do. You do have a choice about what kind of power others have are going to have. Henry Cloud, the power of the other. Now, all of this has made me think about the kind of coaching that goes on between the mentor, the Apostle Paul, and his mentee, his true child in the faith, Timothy. Their relationship, we get a glimpse at in the first letter To Timothy, a letter about influence and a powerful influence that takes place in a coaching relationship. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy. Um, We're going to begin a series on this book. You'll find 1 Timothy on page 991. And 1 Timothy is a case study of the coaching relationship that existed between the Apostle Paul and this younger man, Timothy. And specifically, how Paul's influence empowered Timothy to deal with a crisis situation uh, in the Christian community, in the leading city of the leading province of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years ago. So, this morning we begin in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and here's what I want us to do. Uh, I want to read chapter 1 in total, and then I want us to learn the story of 1 Timothy, why it's written, why it's here. And then we'll walk through the chapter itself, and then I've got a question to ask and a big idea to share. So that's where we're going this morning. Read 1 Timothy 1, figure out the story of the letter, ask a question, and share a big idea. Let's get to work. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience 
and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's Word. Well, you know, reading these verses feels like we're watching a story that's already in progress. And actually, these are three stories. And so to get us up to speed... In terms of what's going on in 1 Timothy, it would be helpful for us to know the story of Paul and Timothy, the story of Paul and Ephesus, and then the story of Timothy and Ephesus. First, Paul and Timothy. So, we see their relationship and how close it is by looking at verse 2. Paul says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, there's a story there in that verse. And the story began 15 years before Paul wrote 1 Timothy. It's a story that we find in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, it says that Paul came to some cities in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, Derby and Lystra, and when he got to Lystra, he met Timothy. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, 
the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy's was the child of an interracial marriage. His mother was of Hebrew ethnicity. His father was of Greek ethnicity. And verse 2 says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so Paul was just really impressed with this young man. And Paul wanted to take Timothy with him on his missionary travels. And so he did. And he circumcised Timothy because they were going to be traveling in both Hebrew locations uh, and then non-Hebrew locations as well. And so with Timothy's background, he would be able uh, to reach different people groups. And their relationship grew over the years. And verse 2 tells us, that they had a father-son relationship. First Timothy 1-2. My true child in the faith. So that's the story of Paul and Timothy. Paul in Ephesus um, happened in Acts chapter 19, where Paul traveled to this pristine leading city of the Roman Empire, it was about 200,000 people, which is huge in the ancient world. And Paul was in Ephesus for three years, preaching and arguing and teaching and reasoning in both Hebrew and non-Hebrew places that Jesus is the risen Messiah. He performed amazing miracles. He taught in both synagogues and a place called the, the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. And Acts 19.17 says that the name of the Lord Jesus was exalted. And Acts 19.20 says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Lives were changed for Christ in Ephesus. Christianity flourished. And, and, and Ephesus had an economy, partly of which was based on the manufacture of idols. So this idol-making, idol-manufacturing uh, city took an economic hit because truth came to town. Once people heard the truth of Jesus, well, they stopped buying the idols. And this caused such an uproar that there was a near riot in the city at the amphitheater of Ephesus. You can still go there. Uh, it, it still exists uh, from the first century. Sarah and I were there uh, several years ago on our trip to Turkey, and it was an amazing, amazing sight. Paul had to leave town because of this riot. Um, and later, he met with elders of the Ephesian church. Because over the years, he had trained them and discipled them and mentored them. And, and he was about ready to leave them, concerned that he would never see them again for the rest of his life. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul says to these elders, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. So he's talking to an elder leadership team and saying... Some of you are wolves, and you know who you are. They're going to come in, and they're going to devour the flock. They're going to speak twisted things. They're going to try to draw away disciples 
from the truth into deception. And, and then he had to leave. Now, here's my question. Why, why would a good leader leave knowing that situation was on the horizon? That was my question. And then I realized that the Apostle Paul was so confident in the message and the truth of the gospel. You see, Christianity does not rise or fall on the Apostle Paul. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrected Jesus. Christianity uh, does not rise or fall on a church staff member or an associate minister or the senior minister. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrected Jesus. So Paul, while concerned, was confident that the gospel would prevail, even when the wolves showed up. And you know what? They showed up. They showed up. They appeared just like, just like he thought they would. And that brings us to Timothy and Ephesus. Um, after Paul left Ephesus, he went to Jerusalem, he went to Rome, he was in prison, and he was released, and he finds himself in Macedonia, that's northern Greece, and he sends Timothy to Ephesus because of this trouble that's going on, and that's what's going on with 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is the letter that Paul sent that tells Timothy what he needs to do to fix the doctrinal drift that's going on in the Ephesian church. And when I say Ephesian church, I'm not talking about a congregation that meets on 10 acres in the southwest part of Ephesus in a room like this. I'm talking about a network of house churches that are led by teachers and elders. And I'm talking about truth that has to be disseminated in that way. That's what we're talking about here. And so you can see there's doctrinal drift that's going on. And in Timothy, Paul, 1 Timothy, Paul urges his child in the faith about what he needs to do to fix this drift. So that's, that's the story of 1 Timothy. Let's cut into chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul starts this letter unlike other letters in the New Testament. When he wrote Philippians or Ephesians, you know, he first self-identifies as a servant of Jesus Christ. He gives greetings and then he gushes over the church and says, I'm so proud of you. I'm praying for you. All of those kinds of warm niceties that prefaces then what he mainly wants to say. That's not what's going on here. At the outset, Paul flashes his badge. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. I've got this badge and I'm not afraid to use it, Paul says. And, and Timothy is my true child in the faith. So you see, Paul knows that Timothy's going to read this letter publicly. And Paul wants 
the church to understand that Timothy is his representative. Timothy is speaking for him, and they're speaking for Jesus. So there's two audiences going on here. There's Timothy, and then there's the congregation. There's the church. There are the Christian community there. And, and so in verse 3, Paul gets down to business. He says, Timothy, remain. Remain in Ephesus. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. And the implication is this. Church, Timothy is not going away. And it's also this. Timothy, don't go away. <laughs> See, you, you got to stay there. And we learned something about Timothy when we read through this letter. We, we learned that Timothy, he was somewhat timid. Uh, he was physically frail. Paul later says uh, to Timothy, you know, don't forget to drink some wine for your stomach and for the frequent ailments, ailments that you have. Timothy was somewhat timid physically, emotionally, and Paul had to remind him, you know, remember your seat. Uh, you know, fatigue is not going to be a factor. Breathe, breathe. And his commands in chapter 1 are summarized in three words. Remain, restore, and display. Remain, restore, and display. So they're action verbs because leadership is about action. I'm thinking of what Crawford Loritz uh, wrote. Crawford Lortz is the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Georgia. He wrote, leadership is not about the conference room or the boardroom. It's all about the battlefield. Leadership is always about verbs. It's about action. It's not about the safety of ideas, but about implementation and movement in the face of opposition. So Paul wants Timothy to remain in order to refute the different doctrine that's going on. Verse 3, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And that's how Paul puts it. Not just that he says false doctrine or erroneous doctrine. He says this is different doctrine. And we don't do different doctrine, Tim. Timothy needs to remain there. He must restore the church with truth, with sound doctrine, with gospel doctrine. And then Timothy must display Christ's love. So, Timothy, I want you to attract them to the truth by the quality of your life. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Yes, there are problems, and yes, there are difficult, high-maintenance, extra-grace-required people who need uh, correction. But how you correct is just as important as that you correct. You know, hearing word images like leadership is a battlefield, and you know, Paul says later on in chapter 1, you know, you need to wage the good warfare. You know, I mean, I'm a good okey. It's kind of nice to put the badge on and put the cowboy hat on and get my revolver and take care of Hymenaeus and Alexander out in the back alley. That's not in the Greek. How you do what you do is just as important as what you do. True doctrine needs to, 
win over different doctrine by the quality of the teaching and correction and instruction. See, that's the Jesus way. Now, someone may be thinking, you know, Pastor, you're using that word doctrine a lot, and I know it's a church, and I know you're a pastor, but I really don't pay much attention to doctrine. Doctrine's heady, doctrine's intellectual, doctrine's highbrow, doctrine's cerebral, doctrine really doesn't matter. Doctrine. Doctrine, schmoctrine. I respectfully disagree, and here's why. Listen, every election in our country is about doctrine. Terrorism is about doctrine. ISIS is about doctrine. Democracy is about doctrine. Secularism is about doctrine. So-called tolerance is about doctrine. To say doctrine doesn't matter is doctrine. Doctrine and life are inseparably linked. So you live out of your heart. So the doctrine that rules your heart rules your life. So it does matter. And that's why the remainder of chapter 1 points out the difference between true doctrine whose aim is love versus a different doctrine that aimlessly drifts into shipwreck. Like in verse 1, true doctrine originates from Jesus Christ through his commissioned and apostle uh, commissioned and authorized Apostle Paul. But the different doctrine was held by some wannabe religious teachers who like to put a spin on all things biblical. In verse 1, uh, we, we can learn that true doctrine is grounded in God's saving act. God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So true doctrine is grounded in the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. True doctrine is grounded in what God is doing to restore Eden. Different doctrine had to do with taking obscure genealogical lists in the Hebrew Bible and just going off on some rabbit trails and tangents and then calling that the gospel truth. In verse 5, true doctrine has a target, an aim, a goal. In verses 6 through 7, the different doctrine swerves and meanders and wanders. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In verses 8 through 11, true doctrine sees the goodness of God's Word and God's law and the Ten Commandments, but different doctrine disregards God's Word, God's law, God's commandments. The vices in verses 8 through 11 that you see there correspond with the Ten Commandments. And these false teachers were saying that it doesn't matter how you live. What matters is, is intellectual and philosophical stimulation through cerebral conversation. And Paul says, uh-uh. We don't just gather and worship to play ping pong with religious ideas. Gospel doctrine is practical. It functions as the operating system of life. And speaking of life, 
Verses 16 and 17 say that true doctrine leads to eternal life. Eternal life to those who believe in Him for eternal life. But this different doctrine causes people to shipwreck their lives. And Paul calls them out by name in verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Most likely, these were two former elders in the church at Ephesus. Paul speaks of them in verse 20 saying, Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That phrase means that they have been excommunicated from the Christian community. They've been disfellowshipped. Now, when two of the elders have to be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, that's not good. Paul wants Timothy to remain and refute the false doctrine. He wants him to restore the church with truth. And he wants Timothy to display the sterling quality of the truth with the sterling quality of his life. True doctrine Different doctrine. This theme dominates not just chapter 1, but the entire letter. Let's just walk through the rest of 1 Timothy so that you can see what I'm talking about. Over in chapter 2, chapter 2 contains instructions for the weekly worship gathering of God's people. And Paul says that true doctrine produces prayer and peace and dignity in the gathering. But the different doctrine produces chaos and confusion. Over in chapter 3, we see the criteria for the selection of church leadership. And true doctrine is character-based. But different doctrine is based on pride and greed. Henry Cloud, who I mentioned earlier, once wrote, Character is always greater than ability. With good character, you can up your ability. But with poor character, you render your ability useless. In chapter 4, we see some personal coaching to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, look, Timothy, the most important person you must keep from deception is yourself. You see, different doctrine produces self-deception. This summer, I read a book on self-deception titled, I Told Me So. The author says, we are are self-deceived whenever we manage our own beliefs for the sake of some goal other than the truth. Hmm. Well, chapter 5 is... uh, is about emotional intelligence. Uh, it's about the ability to relate to a diversity of people groups. Older men and women, younger men and women, widows, families, Hebrews, non-Hebrews. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, um, the broader your reach in terms of people and generations and cultures, then the broader your leadership will be. And gospel doctrine fuels this. Uh, But the different doctrine does not because it's elitist and full of conceit. And then in chapter 5, the theme is money. Hmm. 
and how we need to learn about the difference between true gospel doctrine and different doctrine, especially when it comes to money. And gospel doctrine teaches the love of Christ, but the different doctrine teaches the love of money. And then, you know, Paul closes this letter in verse 20 of chapter 6 with just a plea. Oh, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. You know, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Oh, Timothy. Two doctrines, two types of leaders producing two destinies. 1 Timothy 1. So this leads me to the question here. And it's a good question. The question uh, for a CEO of a company of a thousand employees, and it's a question for a single parent who has responsibility over one child. It's this question. Here it is What is my leadership producing? What is my leadership producing? A Brian Harris. Um, asks this question in his book on leadership, The Tortoise Usually Wins. He says, if I go to your organization, your department, your school, your family, your business, your clinic, your church, and if I snoop around and if I get a feel for the place and I get a feel for the environment, if I get a feel for the mission, what's your leadership producing? You know, leaders, you know, you know what do we hope that they will become? What do they hope to become? What doors do we hope will open for them? What doors do they hope will open for them? Are we doing anything to increase the likelihood of God's calling on their life to flourish and be fulfilled? You see, Paul knew God's calling on Timothy's life. He said, I, I want to I want to hold you to God's calling. Verse 18. I, I entrust to you this charge, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Those prophecies had to do with the encouragements and prayers that Timothy heard when he was ordained into ministry. Timothy, what's your leadership producing? Well, Thank God we don't have to go figure that out on our own because He gives us what He wants from us in His Word. The product of Christian leadership, the goal of true doctrine, the aim of the faith is a selfless culture of Christ-centered love. There it is. A selfless culture of Christ-centered love. That needs to happen not just in a congregation. It needs to happen where you lead, where you are. Even if you're not the CEO, you can lead where you are in your little sector. A selfless culture of Christ-centered love. And that's Timothy's mission to shape and shepherd a loving community of serving, sacrificing, sharing, worshiping, Christ-exalting Christians. Is your leadership producing that? It might produce widgets, it might produce food, it might produce educated minds. But if it doesn't produce love, then it's Leadership of a different doctrine. 
And it's not going to last. It won't. I know this. Listen, a thousand years from now, there's not going to be an American company in existence that is now in existence. A thousand years from now. They'll be gone. A thousand years from now, the United States of America will not be in existence. Rome was the superpower 2,000 years ago. Uh, Today, it's in a museum. But not the church of the living God. 2,000 years. Because we serve a risen and resurrected king. And Paul is electric about that. That's true doctrine. You see, true doctrine is not a document. True doctrine is a person. And Paul's passionate about this because Paul used to oppose this person. Paul used to be a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, a violent man. His his doctrine made him violent. Verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see his point? Paul says, if Christ can save someone like me, he can save anybody. He can save Hymenaeus and Alexander. Because true doctrine's not a document, it's a person. The true doctrine is the story of a rescue operation. The true doctrine is about unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. The true doctrine says that Jesus came to rescue sinners by becoming and being treated like one. On the cross, Jesus becomes the worst sinner of all times. On the cross, Jesus becomes the adulterer. Jesus becomes sexually immoral. Jesus becomes the one who practices homosexuality. Jesus becomes the enslaver. Jesus becomes the liar, the perjurer. On the cross, Jesus becomes whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. He becomes the gossip and the town drunk. He becomes the racist and the oppressor. He becomes the self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus, who knew no sin, received our sin so that we might receive his righteousness. Jesus becomes the sinner, and we become heir to the throne. Jesus becomes the liar, and we become the honest one. Jesus becomes the guilty one, and we become innocent. Jesus becomes shame so that we might be shameless. True doctrine is grounded in a person. And true doctrine is not about how Jesus saves you so that you can have a finely edited, perfectly cropped Instagram life, one that pretends you're not going to die someday. Rather, it's about how in spite of sin, in spite of our constant and consistent failure to live the Christian life or any life at all, Christ has, is, and will save all who call on his name. Does your leadership lead to that? What is it producing? God wants our leadership to produce a selfless culture of Christ-centered love. There it is. And someone may say, well, pastor, that's easy for you to say because you're in a church. If I led like that, I'd get crucified. And you know what? You might. But whoever said you had to survive this world? 
We don't worship a famous deceased religious figure. We worship a living king. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So, you know, no wonder Paul begins this letter with grace, mercy, and peace. Grace means I don't have what it takes to fix this, but God does. That's grace. Mercy means I don't even deserve to have this fixed. But God loves me enough that he will fix it for me. And peace means God's not mad at me. He's not annoyed with me. He's not irritated with me. He loves me. He's my friend. So, Timothy, get on it, man. Remain. Restore. Display. Remember your seat. Remember your seat. And fatigue will not be a factor, dude. Oh, and one more thing, Tim. Breathe. Breathe. Don't forget to enjoy Ephesus while you're there. It's pretty nice this time of year. Gracious God, thank you for gifting us with your truth, your gospel truth. This truth that liberates us and emancipates us from our past, from our guilt, from our shame. God, help us to stay where you want us to stay so that truth will continue to spread where you've put us. Help us, Lord, to restore to be an oasis in a cultural desert, restoring our environment with your truth and help us do it in a winsome, attractive, gracious way. Equip us with supernatural strength and energy so that we would enjoy where you have put us for the good of others and the glory of the King, immortal, invisible, eternal. And God's people said, Amen.